if we are Christians and we understand the full Christian story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation, then we are supposed to see that our, our personal story uh, becomes part of that big story. Uh, if you're an evolutionist, you really can't have any hope for yourself because you only get a story fragment. All you get is something that says, well, human beings have showed up, but when they die, they're gone. And suddenly what satisfies us, which is the idea that uh, the struggles in life are worthwhile because uh, God is paying attention to them, that drops out of the picture and the story becomes immensely dissatisfying and often leads to depression, which is a major problem. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. All of human life is accompanied by pain and difficulty. Christians are frequently caught off guard by the suffering they experience. They are unprepared either due to bad assumptions about the gospel's promises or by poor discipleship. Since everyone will face hardship in some form, it's important that believers understand what the Bible has to say about suffering in the Christian life. My guest on today's show is Dr. Mark Talbot, and he has written an excellent book called When the Stars Disappear to help with this task. Mark Talbot grew up in the Seattle area. When he was 17, he fell off a Tarzan-like rope swing and suffered a paralyzing accident that left him partially paraplegic. After graduating from Seattle Pacific College with a BA in English literature, he completed his PhD in philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. He began his teaching career as an assistant professor of philosophy at Calvin College in 1987 and then moved to Wheaton College in 1992, where he teaches courses on suffering, philosophical theology, philosophical psychology, David Hume, and Jonathan Edwards. We discussed his newest book called When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, which is the first of four volumes in a series titled Suffering in the Christian Life. The second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan, will be available in July of 2022. Before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our mailing list so that you can get the latest content sent directly to your inbox. Visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you are subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on the homepage of YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. Also, if you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared the show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take a minute of your time. When you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation with Dr. Mark Talbot. Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Well, thank you. I've uh, been looking forward to this. I've had your book for a few weeks now, and I've been uh, reading in it and uh, really enjoying it. I think that it's an important book. Before we start talking about it, though, just share this a little bit 
about your background and what you do. I, I already read to the audience your official bio, but in your own voice, uh, just share with us about yourself. <laughs> I teach philosophy at Wheaton College. I've been here since 1992. I taught for five years before that at Calvin College. Um, when I was 17, I took about a 50-foot drop off a Tarzan-like rope swing and broke my back and ended up partially paraplegic. For over 30 years, I could walk with one cane. Then I had to switch to a couple of forearm crutches. Five years ago, I uh, took a spill I was, as I was coming out of my study early on a Saturday morning and broke a hip, so I've been in a wheelchair since then. A lot of my work has had to do with thinking about suffering. Um, a fair amount of it is in its own way Christian apologetics. Um, and, and then I do stuff that is more formally philosophical too, such as philosophical psychology where Christians, if it's properly done, can mine great riches that really support what scripture says about persons. Mm, excellent. So, like you said, you are a professional philosopher, but in your book on suffering, which we're talking about today, uh, you don't come from it just from a place of uh, cold intellectualism or just as an academic reflection, but this is also out of personal experience. The title of your book is When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. That's the book that we're talking about today. And so you start the book by talking about how, once again, this is the, uh, a very... Um, it's a very human reflection. It's, it's, it's not, once again, just figuring out ideas, but it is talking about it from experience in the real world and with real suffering. Can you share a little bit more about that? What, what it means for you to be uh, writing a book, which this is actually the, the first in a series of four. Is that right? That's right. It's going to be four right. volumes. Um, what does it mean for you to be writing these books on suffering uh, out of a place that is greater than just as a professional philosopher, but out of real world, real life experience? Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, Aaron, uh, I start the book by talking about a student of mine that I had who ended up committing suicide, stepped in front of a train when he was overseas. <clears throat> and um, my experience in trying to help his parents um, uh, repair their Christian faith out of that um, was what prompted me to write this particular series of books. Um, as one would expect, a catastrophe like that strikes people just horribly hardly uh, in a horribly hard way. And, and they just found themselves asking all sorts of questions about God, uh, things such as, well, we thought that God always answers prayer. And we prayed um, day and night for our son who was deeply depressed. And God didn't take away his depression, and that was what led to his suicide. Mm -hmm. And we believe that God is omniscient, and so we know all along that God knew that that would happen. So why didn't he do something to stop that? And so uh, the immediate uh, prompt for the book was what happened to him. And my feeling that with the years that I've spent talking to all sorts of people about suffering, that it was important for me to try to fill in what I think is the biblical perspective. Uh, the biblical perspective I see as quite different than a merely philosophical perspective. The biblical perspective has to deal with the suffering that is found in Scripture. And what mm -hmm. actually happened with this set uh, was that it was going to be one book, but I realized it was going to be about 600 or 800 pages long. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that that just wasn't uh, the thing to do to people who might be suffering profoundly. 
And so I uh, talked to Crossway. Initially, we split it into two pieces, but in fact, there are four pieces of four chapters a piece. And I said, let's split it into four books. And this first book is really meant for people who are in the throes of profound suffering who need an answer. And I've tried to write it simply enough that um, even fairly young people can read this, read the main text and understand what God is saying to them from Scripture. Mm. I think you've done that well. From my own reading, I think it is very easy to understand this is something that if you are, like you said, if someone's listening to this who is in the throes of suffering, uh, it's not something that uh, is going to just add more difficulty, right? Uh, whenever you're in the midst of suffering, you don't want to write, read something that is just going to be even more difficult to understand. You need something that's, that's right. going to be uh, softer uh, in terms right. of uh, digestibility. And so I think that you you accomplished that very well in this book. Before we get into the real content of the book, just something that you, a comment you made, made me think about this in the uh, worlds of, uh, I guess, in the academic world and in philosophy and apologetics, we often draw these very hard lines between whenever it comes to the problem of, of suffering and pain. We draw these very hard lines between the logical problem, the uh, the apologetics problem, but then the uh, Morley and Craig say, you know, like the, the pastoral issue. Yeah. Uh, when okay. we are addressing suffering, do you think that we should draw such sharp, hard lines uh, like this in terms of, well, there's the philosophical angle, but then there's the experiential? Or should we yeah. have a little bit more of an, uh, I don't know if the right word would be holistic or integrated approach? Yeah, really good question. Um, I teach a course on suffering, usually each term. And we start with Lewis's problem of pain, because in its own way, that has been kind of the Bible of Americans with regard to how they think about suffering. And we read the first five chapters, which are the more, what shall we say, the more theological um, uh, and um, even philosophical chapters. And then we turn to, right now we're reading my two volumes, and my students say to me, this has gone from dealing with the abstract to dealing with concrete issues and they usually heave this kind of sigh of relief. Now, I think it's important for us to know what somebody like Alvin Plantinga, the great Christian philosopher at uh, Calvin College, um, thinks about suffering. It's even more important for us to know what Scripture says. And all of that needs to be uh, placed within a context where it can really help us in life. The way I see mm. philosophy when I'm writing things like this is that philosophy helps me to say things clearly uh, and, um, uh, and not to confuse people. But if there was philosophy on the surface of the book, it would in a sense be what? Kind of rude or inappropriate if I'm trying to talk to ordinary Christians. Um, the philosophy needs to be what buttresses the way that I think, um, but not uh, the way that I speak or write when I'm working on this level. So I would agree with you. I don't think that the line should be hard and fast. I think that doing really, really uh, rigorous philosophy on an issue like this can help us think better. But then once we've done that, we need to do what C.S. Lewis tried to do, and I, I don't think did quite as effectively in Problem of Pain as in some other books, but we need to translate that so that it, um, uh, it, it's such that people who actually are 
addressing the problem of suffering or living the problem of suffering uh, can see that we feel with them, that we're mm-hmm. concerned with them, and that we're trying to uh, answer their issues rather than some abstract problem. Mm. Yeah, excellent. And I, and I like that you uh, said that philosophy helps us to think clearly about it and to be able to communicate clearly about it, to think well. And that is, and, and that is the role that philosophy, that good philosophy plays, but it cannot stay there in the abstract, just like yes. you were saying. And I think it, it can't stay in the abstract, regardless of really even the, the situation, I think, because, uh, well, especially if we're, if we're going to do apologetics with it, um, because everyone is experiencing suffering in some way. I, I really think that beneath every single objection to God or the Christian faith, on the grounds of the problem and pain and suffering, regardless of how it's framed, even if it's framed in the purely abstract, is someone who is hurting. Yes. They're hurting either from past wounds, from current pains, or from a very uh, deep lament and concern over just what they see in the world. Yes. Uh, we, we cannot silo ourselves uh, any place in the world or at any time in life from suffering. Well, that's just the fallen state of our world. And so I and so since that's a truth of life, that's why I don't I really don't like whenever we <laughs> draw these hard lines and we stay only in the abstract. I think, like you said, it's got to move past that. And I think that's the point of scripture is that scripture, um, whenever it talks about suffering, it's not just wanting to give us a good intellectual answer, but enable us to live well in a world where there is suffering. So let, let's I, talk about. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I think we can see, uh, with regard to that, Aaron, what can go wrong even with seminary educations. Uh, you remember when um, the 20-some kids and teachers died at Sandy Hook Elementary mm-hmm. back in, what was it, early in 2000, something like that? Uh, there were pastors who came on national television and were so shaken by that that it was quite clear that they were questioning whether God could be good if that number of people had died that way. Mm. And and I point out in the first footnote of my uh, of my first chapter that in fact, if you look in Scripture and you read about the slaughter of innocents by Herod after he was trying to kill our Lord, the three the three wise men had come to him. They said. Um, we need to find this guy. Herod sent them on their way. He ended up killing uh, the children that he thought could possibly be um, um, this this Messiah, this person that the wise men had been talking about. Mm-hmm. It was the same, roughly the same number of children. And mm-hmm. so if, in fact, those pastors had known Scripture, they would have uh, not, I think, had their their faith shaken the same way. It was because they got an abstract answer rather than one of the concrete answers of scripture that they could find themselves shaken. Mm. Yeah. Even the Christmas story has, yes, yes. Uh, is injected and, with suffering and horror. And, and, and that, uh, the slaughter of the innocents, of course, was uh, prophesied by Jeremiah. And the interesting thing is that when Matthew ends up uh, highlighting that story, he doesn't take it to take away from God's sovereignty or his goodness at all. He takes it to corroborate that Jesus is God's son. Hmm. Wow. So let's get into the book a little bit more now. 
what you write about in early on in the book is that suffering causes a bigger problem in our life and an even deeper problem than just the visceral pain that we feel by it, whether that's a physical or psychological, emotional pain. Uh, what obstacle, and you describe that, that deeper problem as an obstacle that suffering puts in our path. What is that obstacle that suffering puts <laughs> yeah. in our path and why does it uh, intensify yeah. the pain we experience? Yeah, good question. I picked this up from the great Henri Blochet, who taught at Wheaton for a while, wrote a book called In the Beginning and has written a book on the problem of evil and so on. And what Blochet says is that uh, a problem is something that, in fact, etymologically blocks our view in such a way that we can't see something we need to see. And what ends up happening with suffering is that our our view of God as good and as in charge uh, gets blocked in such a way that we need some help in being able to see that, in fact, he is at work and he's at work for the good of his people. Mm. And that's so good. And I, and I I was really struck whenever I read that because I, I, I thought that was so true, um, how oftentimes whenever we go through some period of suffering um, or what can make witnessing suffering in someone else's life or in another place in the world so distressing is that more is that deeper internal problem cause that obstacle yeah. Of, yeah. of understanding and, yeah. and trying to see. Uh, but we don't always identify that. I, I think that's right. I, I think we quite often, in fact, I think more often than not, we don't. Mm. Uh, and we need to say, wait a minute, here's the problem. Now let's go to scripture and see what the solution is. Yeah, absolutely. And so as you continue in the book, you write about the importance of stories, the importance of yeah. stories in our lives, but then also in suffering. Can you just help us to understand the importance of how do stories function in our lives? And then how does suffering interact with these stories? Uh, what are the dynamics at play there? Yeah, I uh, want to hold that a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, there are some postmodern stories that try to mess that up, but human beings naturally want stories that start somewhere, go through usually some difficulty, and then have a satisfying end. And we need those stories both with regard to our personal lives, and then we just need a story that, in fact, has to do with human life as such. And so what I do is I make a distinction between individual or personal stories and between a general story. Mm. Uh, and what I want to say is that uh, in this first book is that when we look at the personal stories of people like Naomi and Job and Jeremiah and the psalmists when they're in lament, we, we can see how um, their lives go through this hard time, but, but almost always, not in the case of Jeremiah, but in every other case of the stories that I talk about, God starts to bring people back to something that isn't quite as hard. The reason we need the general story, and this comes up in spades in my second volume, which is called Give Me Understanding That I May Live, uh, is because we live in a time when uh, there is, for the first time, if I'm right, in all of history, a really plausible general story that just drops God completely out of the picture, and that's the evolutionary story. Mm. Uh, if, if you believe that, if you're a materialist, you believe that there's no God, then what you think is that everything's to be understood from the bottom up, uh, and we are progressing toward things getting better, 
Uh, if you uh, believe as a Christian that the general story is the story we get in Scripture, then in fact, uh, that's a top-down story. God created things for a particular reason. There was then rebellion that brought the sin and suffering into the world. Mm. Uh, redemption is what's going on now, and then there'll be consummation. And so we need both of these kinds of stories. And what it comes to is that ultimately our personal stories to some degree are affected by and properly should line up with one of these general stories. Mm. Um, and if, if we are Christians and we understand the full Christian story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation, then we are supposed to see that our, our personal story uh, becomes part of that big story. Uh, if you're an evolutionist, you really can't have any hope for yourself because you only get a story fragment. All you yeah. get is something that says, well, human beings have showed up, but when they die, they're gone. And suddenly what satisfies us, which is the idea that uh, the struggles in life are worthwhile because uh, God is paying attention to them, that drops out of the picture and the story becomes immensely dissatisfying and often leads to depression, which mm -hmm. is a major problem in our time. Yeah, depression or just absolute desperation. Yeah. Absolute desperation yeah. in life, uh, which, which w to me... Uh, and I think to a lot of other uh, people seems to be the logical end of that atheistic or materialistic story. Yes, it does seem that that'll be the logical end is just that life is absurd and that we ought to uh, embrace the absurdity of it and live in desperation and uh, nihilism. It's on a different kind. That's right. Yeah. You use the analogy. If I remember, right, use the analogy of, uh, these story, the both the general story, but then also these uh, personal stories we can read in scripture. Use the analogy of them being like uh, guiding stars. Yes, yes. And uh, the way that I get that is when I go to Acts twenty-seven to twenty-eight, and I read about Paul, whom God has promised is going to speak to the emperor in Rome. As Paul heads out over the sea, of course they have this gigantic storm come up that blocks out all of heaven's lights—the sun, the moon, and the stars. They're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. There's a shoal there called the Sirtis, which is such that if you're blown against it in a storm, it'll break up your boat, but you're so far from land that you're all going to drown. And evidently, Paul and his companions were all concerned about that. Of course, God came to Paul in the middle of the night in a dream and said, look it, if you all stay on board, I will deliver you all safe to Rome. And so the, the name of the book, When the Stars Disappear, uh, comes from that uh, particular picture in Acts 27 and 28, and the fact that God did exactly what he said he would do. Mm. Uh, he brought Paul to Rome, where Paul could witness to uh, uh, the, the head of, um, of, of the greatest empire of the time. And in a similar way, when the stars disappear for us, we need to realize that they, they are still there for God. God is still guiding us, and they mm. usually will, in fact, appear again. Mm. That is, that's really, really good. So before we get into, cause I want to talk about those three stories from yeah. scripture that you use as the, uh, as, as the main examples in the book. But before we get into that, I do want to talk about this issue, which I, I think that we we've touched on a little bit already that it seems as though 
the majority of American Christians, we can make it more broadly and just say Christians in the West, especially mm-hmm. in the very modern, advanced West, are not equipped to handle suffering. Do you agree with that? And if you do, why do you think that is the case? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I think I'd expand it a little bit, Aaron. I think that people in general are not equipped to handle suffering, although yeah, that's in, uh, in the two-thirds part of the world, they see more suffering. So it may be that it's a little different for some of them. Uh, Karen Jobes, at the beginning of her great commentary on First Peter, mentions that um, uh, suffering uh, strikes us as what ought not to be. And she says, we have this this kind of dim memory of the fact that the world once didn't include suffering and that someday it won't include it again. And I think that um, we do see that suffering strikes us as if there's really something wrong. For American Christians in particular, we have for so long been given just these positive messages. So many of us have been given nothing but positive messages from the pulpit that we don't realize that life is going to involve hard times for all of us, as you said at the beginning. It's it's virtually impossible to miss those. I define suffering in my second book as any experience which is uh, distasteful enough that we would like it to end. And that's going to include even things like daily work. Uh, when I'm done at the end of the day, I mean, for the first few hours when I'm reading I really enjoy it. And then it starts to become harder. And by the time I'm near the end of the day and still needing to work a little more, it's kind of like pulling teeth. And uh, and that's the way it's supposed to be because of that, in fact, God, God um, providentially ordered that for Adam in Genesis 3 as a way of reminding Adam that something had gone wrong in the world and that he needed to look to God. And so uh, American Christians, by getting all of these happy messages, and if you do these 10 things, your marriage is going to go just great, uh, they are not at all prepared for suffering. Uh, they, they haven't had anybody say, look, at, there are going to be hard times, and the hard times are supposed to be there. Um, and, and they don't hear people usually preaching on Romans 5, 3 through 5. Uh, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, which uh, leaves us not ashamed. Mm. That's excellent. Whenever you're talking about how we have this dim memory that the world should ought not be like this and that one day it uh, will no longer be that way, I think that that's something within us that speaks to the truth of the Christian worldview over and against Yes. the materialistic worldview because that uh, that deep inner um reaction that it, that is it is deeper i don't know i hope this is not mystical but it's deeper even than our consciousness yes yes no no it, I, it, I, com- I, I, it, just, it comes up within us and then we and then we 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 feel the anger we feel that and then we are conscious of it right and so that's what i mean by like it is just within us um we can title it lament Right. That's right. That's and right. I don't know if you've uh, if you're familiar with uh, Douglas Grotheis, a philosopher yep. in Denver. He's a guest yep. of the show, friend of the show, friend of yep. mine. And he has uh, he's written. Uh, well, actually, I don't know if he I'm sure he has an article on it somewhere, but he's talked about people can find it on YouTube. Actually, I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Uh, lament as Christian apologetic. 
Great stuff. I I used to have some uh, traffic with him years ago, and we just haven't we haven't had the chance to talk in a long time. He's mm-hmm. he's quite a good thinker. Yeah. I, I love that idea. Lament as Christian apologetic. That's a great idea. Yeah, but this is something that I think, and 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 you can respond to it if you agree or if, uh, or or you would change it some or disagree. But something that I think is I would agree that there's been a lack of Christian teaching on uh, on suffering that has led to a great weakness and inability for us to be able to handle it well. But I'll go even further and say that I think that a lot of the content of the teaching, whenever it has been brought up in churches itself has been just very, very, whatever label would want to put on it, weak or yes. shallow. And I think that the vast majority of Christian teaching has just been telling believers that whenever they go through pain and suffering, they just need to sit and pray for a way out of it. Yes, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and it, that's part of the reason for having uh, structured my book the way I have, where in the second chapter, when I deal with Naomi's and Job's and Jeremiah's stories, I stop at the end of the second chapter when they are in their deepest grief, uh, when they're suffering most profoundly. And I stop right there because I want Christians to realize just how hard it can be. You have Naomi, who goes back to Bethlehem. Depending on how we uh, take the Hebrew, it may be that when her, uh, uh, when the women in Bethlehem saw her, that they didn't recognize her. They said, is this Naomi? Could have been that they were just delighted to see her, but it could be that her grief had been so deep that it had transfigured her, and they weren't quite sure. So she tells them, don't call me Naomi. Um, uh, my name should be Mara, bitter, because the rest of my life is going to be bitter. Job at one point says, my eye will never again see good. Jeremiah finds his life so hard after he's been tortured by Pasher, um, after he gave his greatest prophecy with regard to what was going to happen to Israel, that he uh, cursed the day he was born, the man who brought news to his father, and gets awfully awfully close to blaspheming God. Mm, And so in the second chapter, I stop there because I want people to feel the depth of their suffering. Because if we don't feel the depth of biblical suffering, when we suffer deeply, we're going to think, wow, what's happening to me? There's nothing in scripture like this. Uh, um, uh, I, I can't find the answer there. And that's why in the fourth chapter, after I talk about lament in the third chapter, in the fourth chapter, I pick up on their stories. And I show that Naomi, of course, at the end of her life, was uh, still properly named Pleasant. That Job's eye saw good again. And even though Jeremiah, even though for Jeremiah, things never became such that they were easy. Um, uh, we don't even have his death recorded. And there are only four people in the book of Jeremiah who ever really um, help him or befriend him. Uh, Even while for Jeremiah, he has to trudge on because that's his place in God's economy, that he's to show what it's like to be isolated and alone. Still, he hangs on to his faith. Seems to me that that's the kind of depth that we need. And if we have somebody who instead just kind of pats us on the shoulder and says, there, there, just pray about it, it doesn't do us any good at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know that the second volume is forthcoming, but if I could ask for a little preview, 
Yeah. <laughs> you said that the title is uh, Give Me Understanding That I May Live. Yes. Right. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what is going to be in the second volume and, yeah. uh, and, and, and what that title is getting at? Yeah. Um, the um, subtitle is um, um, Placing Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan or Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. And so while the first volume is dealing with these personal stories, the second volume is dealing with creation, with rebellion, uh, and and in the fourth, those are the first two chapters. The fourth chapter is redemption and consummation because they go together. In between in the third chapter is a whole chapter just on suffering. And what I'm trying to do in that volume is give the big Christian story in such a way that people will see the marvels of what God uh, has planned for us, uh, what, why he created human beings, um, what it meant for us to rebel against him, how um, uh, all of the sin and suffering in the world for human beings came out of that, and finally, of course, how our Lord um, uh, is the only one who by his sacrifice could uh, bring us to the place that by putting our faith in his work, we can be right with God again. So the, the volume overall is meant to go from uh, the small stories we got in volume one to now getting the full Christian story and then being able to get the personal stories and the general story together. Yeah. And in both volumes, um, I, I found I need to mention this more and more, Aaron, because people uh, don't take it seriously enough if they read my advice to uh, to the readers in the back of the first volume. Uh, the books are structured in such a way that you can read just the text and get the basic storyline. One of my uh, friends at Wheaton, an, another professor who teaches creative writing, said to me at one point when she heard about this, she said, Mark, you need to write a children's story on this. Because she said, you gave me a couple of your chapters and I took them home and my family was going through a really hard time. And I gave them to him, uh, to my children as a kind of children's story and it did them a lot of good. And so I want the text in these volumes to be readable by anybody. But then there's a lot of scripture references because I don't want to make any theological or biblical claims without their being backed up. And so on a second reading, looking up the scripture references is worthwhile. But then on the final, uh, on, on another reading, the, the business is to read the end notes, of which there are many, because they deepen what's said. Let me give you one, Aaron, that I think uh, you'll really appreciate, given what we've just been saying about uh, the way that we are unprepared for suffering in the church. Uh, there's a commentator who uh, wrote in the um, New International uh, Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis named Moberly. He defines biblical lament as turning to God in prayer in times of distress. And then he sets out the biblical laments in the more general context of Old Testament faith. And this is what he says. Although the Old Testament constantly stresses the importance of trust, faith, and obedience as characterizing the true Christian response to God, the general canonical presentation is such that these are not to be conceived in any simplistic way, as though life were essentially a matter of obeying orders. Rather, 
there is a recurring portrayal of life under God as containing space for dialogue with him, with room for question and answer. Obedience to God is to be set in the context of an intelligent relationship and not be mindless uh, obedience alone. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's when, when you think your way through that. Uh, one thing that I've found again and again is that when people are suffering deeply, um, churchgoers haven't been instructed on how to think about that. Years ago, I was speaking out in California and with a pastor that I knew really well. And he said to me, um, I've got somebody in the congregation here. It was a weekend conference. He says, there's somebody here who lost his wife two years ago, and he is still in deep, deep grief. And this pastor knew his Bible well. And so I said to him, Steve, how long do you think it usually takes for somebody to get over a really deep grief from losing a spouse? He immediately answered about seven years. The empirical evidence is exactly that. There's something that's called subjective well-being that can be objectively measured. And what they find if they do longitudinal studies is that somebody who had a certain degree of subjective well-being and then loses a really dear spouse, it takes about seven or seven and a half years to get back to the same degree of subjective well-being if they ever do. And so what we do, and my friends who lost their son found this to happen. What we do is we ask people for a couple of months, how are you doing after they've lost somebody? Yeah. And after that, we really don't want to stand around and listen to them telling us how hard it is. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. Wow. Wow. Once again, it takes uh, some much more intelligent thinking, uh, much greater intellectual and emotional commitment to understand suffering well and to be able to have a healthy and maturing relationship with God where we grow closer to him, wrestle through suffering along with him in his spirit. And, uh, he transforms us through it all. Yes. Wow. Yes. So in the second volume where you go through the Christian worldview, do you mm -hmm. do any, um, worldview analysis of the Christian worldview, uh, and how it presents and it equips us to handle suffering in comparison to other non-Christian worldviews? Not exactly that, Aaron, but the one thing that I do do uh, that I think is really important is that I think we've forgotten the centrality of the resurrection to our witness. Um, I've spoken at churches for lots of years, and there are some churches where I'm invited back about every year to speak for a month or so. And in some of those situations, there are people that I just love. They're really, really deep Christians. But I find myself asking quite often, why is it that they and I are not turning the world upside down? What is it about our witness that means that uh, we aren't finding um, even the opposition that, that the first Christians found because they were turning the world upside down. And I think what it comes to is this. Um, in the New Testament, the resurrection was the unexpected event. It was what nobody really thought uh, of before it happened. And suddenly Jesus, who had died, this man who had died, uh, is obviously alive. And so the New Testament is all about his resurrection. And, and Paul makes that so clear in 1 Corinthians 15, which I end up dwelling on a lot in this fourth chapter on uh, redemption and consummation. But I dwell on it 
after I've spent a lot of time dealing with Psalm 90 and Ecclesiastes, which really get us in the dumps about the ways that life is going to be for us. What I say, this is horrible to have to say it, but I think it's true. What I say is that we are going to suffer in virtually all the ways that everybody else does, and because we're Christian, in many more ways, because we're going to be persecuted. Well, when we get to the Christian message and we see that Christ was raised from the dead, we suddenly find that the message is that his resurrection is the first fruit of the entire recreation of the entire world. Uh, Blochet says that when our first parents brought death into the world, they brought a whole funeral procession along with it. All of the sickness and the grief and the various kinds of discomfort and disagreement and everything else. So what came with their um, uh, their disobeying God is this, this whole mess of human suffering. And what Christ's resurrection assures us of is that death has been conquered. And there will come a point where for the people of God, death will be no more. And I just was, I was preaching this at my suffering class yesterday, that if we really believe that, we're going to take that message out into the world. And we're going to say, look, this, this view of the world is utterly different than any other view. There's no other view that suggests that for those who have put their trust in the work of God's Son, that everything about their lives is going to be redeemed, and that life and, and the world itself is going to be recreated because of the work of God's Son. And so, while I don't talk about worldviews so much, um, I do stress uh, that um, we look forward to the consummation. And that in looking forward to that, we look forward to the fact that what grieves us so much in suffering, not merely death, but all the ways that things go wrong, that all of that will be past, and that uh, things will be such that there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more death. Mm, that's great. And we have the resurrection as that eternal uh, eternal sign to look at. Yes. That, that assures. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What, a, what a great... Uh, comfort the resurrection is to us when we begin to doubt. Yeah. Uh, whether it's just intellectual doubts or whether we go through suffering, we begin to doubt. We wonder, is God still there? Is he going to come through here? Uh, we have the resurrection to look towards as our, as that stamp. Yes. Right, on on yes. history telling us that, uh, that God has begun the work and that it will be fulfilled. The work of redemption. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 so we have a hope that is just different than anybody else's hope. And the Eastern religions, um, the, the basic way of getting rid of suffering is to get rid of personhood, to say, well, let's quit thinking as if we're persons with our particular desires and fears and so on and so forth. We want to be kind of absorbed into nirvana, where where we are uh, where we are nothing as individuals. Well, that doesn't really fit the the way that we understand each other. When, when somebody dies, even with people who have no Christian faith, there's often this kind of sense that uh, that personality needs to go on. That was important. Only Christianity speaks directly to that and says, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. And our, our saviors having been raised 
after the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus said, we thought he was the one to come. Uh, the fact that our Savior was raised and appeared to them and appeared to 500 others is the sign that God is going to uh, redeem and make whole and preserve that which is most precious to us, which is communion with him and other persons. Wow, that's so good. That's great. Um, yeah, we, we could go on and on, but as we, as, as we get closer to the end here, let's just talk about this. And I know there, we might've already gone over it and, uh, whatnot, but it'd be a good reminder. Even if we have, what is the main takeaway that you want readers of your book or someone who's listening to this podcast to have based yeah. on this discussion today? Yeah, really good question. I think it would be what's in the epilogue in the first book that, um, uh, that they will learn to endure. Uh, the great um, lesson to be learned from Hebrews 11 is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, uh, it, it really uh, makes uh, real what we hope for. And, and when you look at somebody like Abram, when he's being called out of his home country, he's a moon worshiper. God says to him, Abram, start walking. I'll tell you when to stop. Someday this land will be yours and your descendants. He walks. He stops. He doesn't get the land. His son doesn't get the land. His grandson doesn't get the land. It's all looking forward to something that's going to come later, but they endure. Uh, they don't try to go back to uh, uh, their original home place. When you look at Moses and you realize the way that he endured, the lessons there all lead up to what happened to our Lord at the beginning of chapter 12, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross. And so I think that the lesson would be that, that if we arm ourselves with these stories, and if we learn to lament properly, where we really can go to God and we can, in dialogue with him, even say things, because I say this in the chapter on laments, even say things to him that may not be quite literally true, like, Lord, I'm, I'm drowning here. Um, but, but we need to put it that way in order to make clear how awful things seem. If we learn to go to him that way and we learn from these stories how, how God brought out of really horrible suffering with Naomi and Job and Jeremiah, um, uh, goods that will, that will shine forever. If we can learn from those stories to endure, then we will have learned what we should have. Mm. Excellent. That's my hope as well. Once again, the book that we talked about today is When the Stars Disappear by Dr. Mark Talbot. Uh, it is available now, and so I'll have it linked in the show notes for you guys. You can find a link to those show notes in the description if you're watching on YouTube or on uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to so that you can find that book and get it, read it, share it, and uh, and, and so on. Uh, but Mark, before we go, do you have, uh, if anybody's wanting to follow up with your work, get connected with you, do you have a, a website or anything that you'd like to point people towards for how they can continue to follow your work? Uh, I've had a foundation that supported me for almost 10 years now, Christian Scholars Fund. And um, uh, the um, email address, is, well, the, the website is Christian Scholars Fund, all one word, dot org. They can go there and they can find a fair amount of my stuff. 
people could contact me directly if they want to at Wheaton College uh, with my email, mark.talbot, T-A-L-B-O-T, at Wheaton, W-H-E-A-T-O-N dot E-D-U. That's probably the two easiest ways to get hold of me, Aaron. Great. Awesome. Well, I'll have both of those in the show notes once again. So you guys who are listening, uh, if you want to find Mark's book, uh, the website and email he just mentioned, or anything else we mentioned in this episode, I'm going to have all those resources linked in the show notes. So you guys can go and find all of that there. But Mark, I just want to thank you so much for not just your time here, but your work in this book and the volumes that are to come. Uh, they've already helped me and I know they're going to help so many others. So thank you for the work that you're doing and for your time here with us today on Filter. Thank you, Aaron. It's been really good to be here. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast.